Alex Moset, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. We've got a great lineup today, a whole bunch of I told you so. And you know what today is? July 1st. This is the first day of the recession. We are officially now in a recession in this country. No one wants to talk about it. Uh, you know, people. Look at CNBC, right? This is CNBC. The Atlanta Fed GDP tracker shows the economy is likely in a recession, but we need to wait like six weeks to actually declare that we are 100% in a a recession, not likely. So a recession is defined as two subsequent quarters of shrinking, of contraction in the economy. In Q1, you had 1.6% decline, and the Atlanta Fed tracker uh, says the second quarter, um, the second quarter is running at negative 2.1%. So it's not like, oh, well, it's looking more positively. It's shrinking less than in Q1. No, this is saying eh, it's looking like it's trending worse. <laughs> the quarter is now over, but we need to wait for the official announcement before saying that, yeah, we're actually, of course, we're in a recession gang. Inflation is not going away. You know, they report that inflation is like eight or nine percent. Inflation is probably 20 or 30 percent. There's no other way. And we called it right for years on this show multiple times that inflation was not transitory. While the Fed kept on saying, oh, don't worry about inflation. This was basically all of last year. There's no logical reason why they would raise unheard of 75 basis point increase and then say, yeah, we think we're going to do the same thing again another 50 to 75 basis points in the next meeting, which is coming up shortly here, right? The only reason why is, yeah, the the official inflation stats are not accurate. And inflation is actually much worse and much more widespread than actually being reported upon. And I think that's exactly what's happening. I've talked many times on the show about where we see inflation at because, you know, our track record is uh, is actually better than the Fed's, which is not a point I'm proud of, frankly, right? Like, when the Fed, when the Fed misses this, you know, Applico, my company, like we will actually thrive in this chaos, uh, which is another point we're going to talk about, which is what happens to tech startup valuations. Hint, they aren't good, um, which is actually a benefit for my business. Uh, but the real problem with inflation and recession and all these things is it hurts. It hurts the lower to middle income. Uh, which there are hundreds of millions of people that fall into that bucket struggling just to put food on the table. And they're the ones, when you print $10 trillion, whose wealth are you erasing? It's theirs. The rich get richer, right? The disparity, the, the income disparity, the wealth gap gets larger when you print $10 trillion. Inflation wipes out your, your everyday, your hourly worker, your blue collar worker, right? Their wages aren't able to increase fast enough to keep up with the rate of inflation. It's really sad. And they're the ones that actually bear the brunt of this. And that's when, yeah, we like to joke. Oh, yeah, we called it right. You know, the Fed was wrong. That's the real sad part of this whole story. Actually, uh, hundreds of millions of Americans, middle America, and they're the ones that when the Fed messes up like this, when the Fed wants to print $10 trillion and have everyone kind of be like hunky dory and, you know, 
uh, smooth things over and then ignore inflation, which was so obvious. Uh, and then now, as a result, they're going to crash this economy like we've never seen before. That's the sad truth. It didn't need to be this bad. It did not need to be this bad, and it's going to get bad. And a lot of this was avoidable, both from a uh, central bank, Federal Reserve, and fiscal. Uh, you know, the federal government has not helped us one iota to avert this now recession, which is here, and it's only going to get worse. So didn't need to be this way. Let's put it that way. And I also blame China. Of course, I blame China. But we ourselves, the, the institutions that we have set up to help this country, federal government and federal reserve have not done that. They've actually done the opposite. I actually think they've made this worse than it had to be. I mean, that begs the question, you know, why is Jerome Powell getting another term? Like, no one talks about that. Jerome Powell uh, reinstated. They're like, look at this. This was nine days ago. Fed Chairman Powell testifies, U.S. not at the point of recession in the near term. Does he understand what the definition of recession is? What is wrong with this guy, actually? This was nine days ago. He says, a recession is certainly possible, but not in the near term. I don't see the likelihood of a recession as particularly elevated right now. Nine days ago. Powell said, no one is good at forecasting recessions very far out. Bro, I'm not asking it for like, what, a couple quarters out? I'm, this is nine days. We're in it. This guy's a fool. Early to mid-May, Jerome Powell confirmed by the Senate for a second term. The Senate voted overwhelmingly Thursday to give Jerome Powell a second term as Federal Reserve chairperson. By the way, in mid-May, we all knew that we had devastatingly high inflation. We all knew that the Fed completely missed the call. It wasn't just the Fed. It was our Treasury Secretary. It was federal government officials. The Fed. Everyone just kind of like tells them these, you know, they just like convince themselves of an alternate reality. So the Senate voted 80 to 19 to give Powell a second four-year run. When you look factually at the misses he's already had and you look at what's about to come, much of it again could have been avoided or certainly mitigated. Very sad to see. Okay, next topic. Some more I told you so. Article here out of Pinterest. Pinterest CEO shakeup. These guys like to claim that they said that Ben Silberman, the co-founder and CEO of Pinterest, was expected that he would leave. No one could say they were surprised that Ben Silberman is stepping down as CEO of Pinterest. I read the information. I report on the information on the show. This is not what the information was saying at all. That's something we've expected for a while. No, that's not true, Martin. You know, just, people just lie. You know, now hindsight's twenty twenty. So you look at our reporting on these things, right? In which now the information says, oh, this is obvious. Maybe they're saying it was obvious as of like six days ago because Pinterest literally hired his replacement and it's in the securities filings that they hired this Google exec, Bill Reddy. Um, so maybe that's why they're saying it was obvious as of six days ago. But if you watch this show, it was obvious as of two years ago that this guy needed to go. And then they say, oh, well, you know, look at all these past events. 
Silberman was criticized for moving too slowly on decisions. We talked about how um, you know their M and A slowed down. They were looking to to buy companies, and then they dragged their feet, and then they lost the deals. We've talked about their failure to move into commerce. Instagram beat them, and you know is farther ahead in, in monetizing their social media platform and getting into commerce. How did Instagram beat you, right? And then this is when I first called that Ben Silverman was the problem, and everyone reported on this thing. And no one actually attributed blame back to the CEO. We did. I'm going to show you the video. This was this, I think she was like the COO, this Francois uh, Brower. Uh, might be butchering the last name. Or she wrote this Medium post and, you know, talking about all the cultural issues inside of the company. This was uh, August of 2020. So almost two years ago. You, you heard it here first, gang. Here it is. Here's the clip. You need a different CEO. I mean, there are spectrum to these, uh, you know, founder CEOs that, that are able to grow with the company and, and you know, and manage a uh, business with over, what, 10,000 people in it, something like that. Um, you know, we saw one end of the extreme of that with Uber and Travis, crazy cultural problems. But it is a very difficult thing, right? To be there in the early to mid stages. And then, and then now you have this big company and, and you've had certain executives that you've been in the trenches with for years. And it's difficult stuff to do. Um, doesn't mean, hey, you know, maybe Ben doesn't need to exit the business entirely. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, I'm not saying the guy is trying to do something, you know, uh, egregiously or, 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 or is like grossly negligent or, or deliberately trying to hurt the business that all of his net worth is tied up in, right? What I'm saying is as a CEO, doesn't sound like he's a good CEO from this post. Could he be like a really good head of product? Probably wouldn't want to do that ego, but, or could he be like a good chairman? Or if you look at what the Google founders did, Larry and Sergey, right? Like they kind of just worked on like cool stealth projects, right? But they let Eric Schmidt and now Sundar, you know, run the business as that professional CEO. August 2020, that was the first story with the former Pinterest COO. And I, and I, you know, and I read that, you can go check out that video. Boom. We called it back then. We also continued to call it here. Pinterest failed to spend $500 million to go buy a company that does commerce. They're trying to go buy this company called VeraShop. Turns out that maybe PayPal was going to buy Pinterest. And then the thing with PayPal falls through. They call back a VeraShop and say, hey, Imran, let's do the deal. And then they got turned down. CEO's problem. You know, if they're not able to go and do their own product innovation, then you got to go buy stuff and maybe that can give you growth, but they're not able to do either now. And then two years ago, you got the COO leaving, talking about all these cultural issues. Hmm. Seems like a problem with the CEO. So they couldn't do commerce internally. And then they tried to go and blow half a billion dollars on this company and the company told them to go to hell. So they just can't do commerce for the life of them. They can't build it and they can't buy it. It's their path to the promised land and they cannot figure it out for the life of them. But well, we have called this thing six different ways from Sunday and we got it right all the way to the bank. Damn, we nailed that one. Uh, see ya, Ben. Maybe the board watches our videos, right? And in that case, board, you're welcome. But you should have watched the video from August 2020 you know, that would have saved you a year and a half and you would have been able to go buy that company and be able to you know, make a bunch more money. The funny thing is this photo of him, 
photo, uh, the information used for this, I was at this luncheon. Uh, this is at the Economic Club in New York. I listened to the guys speak there. Was not impressed. We're in a recession and tech startup valuations ain't doing so hot. And they got more to go. VCs may not think so, but the strategics do. So let's look at some of the data here. You know, at the end of every quarter, you kind of do your uh, kind of like mark to market, you know, hey, here's what we think, because these are all illiquid private investments, right? So, but you need to, at least on paper, update what you think the value is of, of your fund and of your investments, right? If you're a venture capital or if you're a private equity investor or, you know, you do real estate or, you know, other illiquid kind of private assets that aren't as easily priced, you know, you need to, you need to at least look at what you think that what, what those investments are worth on paper. So in Q1, more than 68%, 68% of venture funds suffered a drop in total realized and unrealized returns versus capital invested. Oof. Ugh. That take the, the air out of a lot of people. Of those funds, the median decline is 3.5% from 2021's peak in terms of so, I mean, that's not that much. That's the median, though, not the average. And to put that in perspective, uh, that decline is still very big, um, considering this is all of them, right? That decline is surpassed only by the downturns during two periods of, of recent events. The global financial crisis, which hit 7.8%, right? So we didn't just have a global financial crisis. You know what I mean? Like, this was Q1 of 2022. Things were just so high in 2021. We had $10 trillion printed and injected into the economy. We called it on the show. Not only did we say that we have real inflation, but we absolutely called asset price inflation long before anyone else was even willing to agree to, long before anyone else was even to agree that there was asset price inflation. So I think there's more to go, 3.5%. Uh, compared to, again, 7.8% global financial crisis, that's in 08. And then dot uh, com crash was 15.7%. So we are not done seeing this. Again, these Q1 is we, we did another video talking about the lag. And so the Q1 data doesn't actually show the full story. There's more to go. We just closed out Q2. So in another month or so, you're going to start to see that data trickle in. And that data is going to be, I think, by and large, even worse. I think you're going to see an even bigger drop than 3.5% in Q2 here. So 68% with markdowns of VC, that compares to 54% from private debt funds, 52% from private equity funds. And so VC, you know, they're winning this, they're, they're winning this uh, race, unfortunately. And then you look at the median, the median downtick. Private debt and PE had a, had a 10 basis point decline, so 0.1% decline as compared to VC at minus 3.5%, right? Not good. So now you say, well, you know, in the beginning of this video or in the beginning of our episode today, I was saying how... Um, you know, a lot of people can still thrive, even though you're in a recession and, and, and the economy is in a downturn, us included. And, you know, uh, what Applico does is we help large enterprises strike partnerships and do deals with tech startups. And so 
fortunately, we did not help our clients buy companies at you know maximum peak valuation. You're welcome, clients. They probably wouldn't be a client anymore if we did. <laughs> and instead, now this article here is saying, hey, strategics think that startups have more to go in terms of decrease of valuation. And I'd say that's 100% correct. Uh, the VCs may not think that. Um, VCs are telling their, their startup portfolios to, to uh, look at potential sales. And they've got some quotes in this article about that. But then the article is saying, hey, anecdotally, we know VCs are telling their startups to look at that, but the data actually doesn't show that. So what's interesting is here's what the data is showing is the actual amount of strategic acquirers. So these are strategics. These are you know enterprises, corporates buying VC-backed startups in, in the U.S. That number actually peaked in Q4 of 2021, a little over 300 deals that closed in Q4. Now, you got to remember, there's a lag here, right? So for a deal to close in Q4, you know, had to start in Q3. So now what you're seeing, though, is the closed count in Q1 dropping to 260. And now in Q2, this is as of June 24th. So you still have a week or so of data to go. But as of June 4th, you're at 192. You're not going to certainly make it back to 260. So maybe you're around 200. It peaked at, at 313 in Q4 2021 then to 260 Q1 2022, which was pretty much um, still a, a banner number ahead of where in, uh, in Q4 of 2020, you had 245 was the number of closed transactions uh, in Q4 of 2020. So 260 in Q1 of 2022 still beats that. Now we're down. Now we're, now we're going underneath where Q4 was. Now we're kind of in the territory of where we were Q3 of 2020 um, with Q2 here, maybe at 192, 200. And so to me, what this means is strategics are taking a step back. You know, you still now haven't seen, right? Like the Q3 number is going to really start to show you once strategics could look at where deals were at in end of Q1 and into Q2, yeah, I don't know. Hey, like, uh, you know, VC money is drying up. Interest rates are going up. Startups are going to have a tough time. Let's wait before we really go buy someone right now, right? I think this Q3 number is absolutely going to drop from where it is in Q2. You could say it's going to drop below the, the low. So the low for the past five years was actually... 163 deals, and that was in Q2 of 2020. That was the low. So will it go to a five-year low? You know, it might not. And here is why, is because we're not talking about total dollars spent. We're talking about total deals closed. So I know I'm already seeing it just anecdotally in the, in the work that we do. You are seeing a number of startups pick up the phone and say, hey, so would you be interested, right? So this is total deal count. I do think you're going to see now a lot more inventory come online. You really need to have cash in the bank for the next two years if you want to live through the next couple of years comfortably, right? What are the best startups going to look like? They got cash in the bank for the next two years, or they still have really strong growth and they're not losing too much money, where they could go, you know, maybe they didn't do their raise in the past year or so, but they still could pull off a raise 
they're they're going to get whacked in terms of valuation, but they can still get the cash they need to make it through the next couple of years. And you know they could still go do that raise like later next year or early next year, right? So for basically all the companies that don't fit into that category, they're going to need to look at door number three, which is making some uncomfortable phone calls. You know, these strategics are smart and they understand. I mean, they're in the business. They can see it in their own business, what's happening and how much demand is softening, which means that if you're a startup and you don't have some nice cash reserves and your growth isn't exactly where it needs to be or your burn's a little bit too high, mm, yep, you gotta, you know, make those phone calls, right? What's the harm in making the phone call? The, you know, the, someone says no, okay. What you don't want to do is not make the phone call and wait another three or six months where now you're talking about bankruptcy, right? Whereas if you got out in front of this, because what you have to understand is for strategics to do deals, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot longer than, you know, a high priced, flashy, big tech acquisition. Actually, I, frankly, it actually takes much longer because... You know, you are now going to a strategic that maybe they weren't already thinking about why to do this. Why is this a priority? These large billion dollar companies, right? They have a plan. And, and if you don't fit into that plan and you want to just kind of say, hey, I'm like, I'd be a great thing for you to buy. Should they take time to pause and divert resources to something that wasn't already on the roadmap? If it was already on the roadmap, they're already talking to you, right? I mean, worst case, like, even if you don't need to actually go through with the deal, I mean, then just don't don't sell it, right? Like maybe you do raise that fundraise and you don't need to sell. Okay, good for you. But, you know, what I say is you don't want to wait till the last minute. Don't care about like optics and all this kind of stuff. Oh, they're going to judge me because I said, hey, I might be open to it, right? Like, um, honestly, none of that matters. No one really cares about that. And... um you got to just make, it's time to make the tough phone calls. That's, that's what time it is. No other way around it. We have not seen anything yet. Let me show you some data here from real estate. You're seeing something similar happen in real estate, which is crazy. Look at this stat. Active listings percent change from prior month. This is May. This is May data, May of 2022. This is for real estate now. 25% increase. 25% month over month increase in active listings. Why is that? It's because a lot of people in this country are smart. They can see economy is not hot. Apparently they can see that better than Jerome Powell. God, it is just too easy to take shots at that guy. He, I mean, he sets himself up for it. Nine days ago, he says there's no recession. Excuse me? 25% increase in active listings. Look at the data, right? In February of 2022, you had minus 15% which means right there's less active listings from the month prior in January to February there was less inventory online than there was the month before so more people buying not as many people adding inventory to the market now you got 25% increase what you're seeing is people realizing hey i don't sell my house now i'm not going to be able to do it in the future Right. Or if I if I do, I'm going to take a much bigger haircut. I'm not going to be able to maximize the price for the house. That's why you're seeing this rush of new inventory coming online. I think it's the same thing you're seeing. There's no way to look at like tech startups for sale. <laughs> there's there's no data point for that. Right. Um, you can just kind of see what's closed. Right. But if you want to say, hey, 
who's putting their hand up, I guarantee you it's the same stat or very similar, right? It's now everyone's saying, ooh, this ain't going to be so good. Interest rates are going up, not going to, right? Uh, uh, the, the mortgage on a house is, gonna, is already going through the roof. It's only going to keep going higher. It's only going to keep raising interest rates because inflation is uncontrollable. Still not going down. Talk to my B2B distributors all the time. Still not going down, gang. And the stuff they see is, is at least six months out from the time it gets to the consumer and the actual inflation reading. Inflation's still going up. People have figured it out. People are smart. They can say, oh, once the data really comes out in real estate, and for example, the Q2 data, once that data comes out, which again is lagged by a few months, and you really understand you know, that home prices are coming down and um, the deals that are closing are, are now closing for less, but there's a lag on that data. We haven't seen that data officially reported, but you can look at the signals and the signals in the market are saying, yeah, if you haven't sold that house and, you're, and you kind of need to sell that house or, you know, you sell the house like right now, like right now, sell that thing in July. Because this data is going to start to come out more and more. You're not going to get the same price you could get right now. You're not going to get the same price that you could have gotten six months ago. Uh-uh. So Netflix, it's just too easy to beat up on these things. Netflix is now going to do ads. This company, I mean, they don't innovate. Not even, not even, uh, I'm not even talking business model innovation. This is just like a, this is product innovation. That's all this is. Business model innovation is how can we embrace like a platform business model? How can we embrace a third party content? How could we go after YouTube? How could we go after UGC platform model? How could we have a hybrid kind of like premium tier? Right? We've had so many videos on the show how the only ones actually innovating in, in content business models are the platform monopolies. They're the people that have content platforms and actually have then a linear premium content streaming business, right? So like Amazon has Twitch and then they have Prime Video. You've seen them cross-pollinate those two businesses to quite successfully together and Twitch is killing it. You've seen YouTube uh, try to launch their own premium, um, premium like subscribing their own linear uh, proprietary content into YouTube. That didn't work out so well. You've seen them now launch YouTube TV. Right. So you're seeing multiple players innovating in this arena. Apple's doing its thing with Apple TV Plus. Then they've got their, you know, Apple Music and uh, podcasting. And they've been slow to drag their feet on, you know, bringing in like premium podcasters that are exclusive to the platform. They've like flirted with doing it and they just haven't been able to execute on it. But nonetheless, right, all the content platform monopolies are tinkering around with a hybrid, right? What's like a 3P, a content platform business model, plus a hybrid, a linear premium content model. None of the linear players go the other way. Disney doesn't go the other way. Netflix doesn't go the other way. HBO doesn't go the other way. You know, why is it all one way, right? Why is it always the, the tech innovators embracing business model innovation and disruption and the incumbents in the content arena, not else, not everywhere, but it's specifically in content. All they know how to do is just, is just buy other companies that look like themselves. Frankly, Disney just buys other studios like Star Wars. Then they buy the MLBs like streaming thing and they buy Hulu. 
Those are all linear business models with like digital on top. HBO, same thing. They just like merge with AT&T and then merge with Discovery and just do these mashups. Where is the actual business model innovation? Answer, nowhere, unfortunately. For I mean, I mean that's on them, frankly. This, nothing new with this. Oh, now we're going to do ads. Why are you going to do ads, Ted? Oh, because we're like losing hundreds of thousands of subscribers who don't want to pay for our service anymore. Oh, could you have seen that one coming? Yeah, you could have. Why are you waiting now to do advertising? Like you couldn't see, huh? You think the competition is actually catching up with us? You think like we might lose subscribers in the future? You can, you know, look at what your CAC is. Is your CAC increasing cost of customer acquisition? Like you don't think there's some smart people inside of Netflix that said, hey, we might lose subscribers. Like you think they just finally realized they're gonna lose subscribers? when they lost the subscribers? No, I guarantee you no. There's smart people that work at Netflix that were ringing the alarm bell. I just don't think the top brass were listening to them because they're stubborn. And how do I know they're stubborn? Just look at how this company has behaved for the past like handful of years. They had such a huge head start that if they were actually more innovative, they would not be in this position. Like now they're just doing ads and he's speaking about their strategy at the fancy festival in France. Who does that? Like, just launch it, bro. Just like, do it. Why do you keep talking about it? Just do it. And now they might partner with Google to run the program. I mean, it, they're never going to do it themselves. It's just, it just sad. What you could do is, um, is say, hey, you know what? Now that we're going to do ads, we're going to do third-party content. That would be disruptive, right? No, they're just going to do ads on their same linear streaming business model, right? Like this is not actually anything innovative. The hedge funds have been saying to do ads for years, right? So if the hedge funds are determining your product strategy, you've got serious issues, Netflix. No innovation in programming and we're going to let, you know, uh, new types of like user generated or hybrid content creation models. Nope, nothing there. That'd actually be interesting. Nope. Instead, he says, you know, we are not going to have ads in our premium tier. It's just going to be a separate tier. Guarantee you, you just lied right there. I guarantee you. Market, July 1st, 2022, market. Once you let the ad genie out of the bottle, ad genie is going to want more eyeballs. And where does Netflix have the most eyeballs? Oh, that's right. In the actual business that they have called premium streaming. Like, Without a doubt, ads are going to make it to the product you pay whatever it is, 12 bucks a month for. I don't pay for Netflix. I will not pay for this junk. I will co-opt someone else's account and use their account because they've done a horrible job actually preventing that. So I don't pay for Netflix. I still watch some Netflix stuff. I will admit to that. But I don't pay for it. I use someone else's account. Try and find out whose account it is Netflix. I dare you. Let's see if you can figure it out. Some breaking, shocking news. Who would have ever thought this would be the case? that TikTok is giving US people's information to, oh, oh, that's right, to China, to the CCP. Man, who would have ever seen that one coming? Oh, I mean, besides this show, probably half of the United States, this company is owned by ByteDance, which is owned by China. China said, you know, I don't like the CEO of ByteDance, and you know what, he left. He's no longer involved in his own company. Uh, China said, you know, 
we'd like to invest and get a board seat at a sweetheart deal. And they invested, got a sweetheart valuation and they're on the board. Not only that, they have an entire army of like cyber commission regulators in ByteDance offices to make sure that they're complying. What that means is that they're complying when the government says, I want to see this information, give me this data. And right around when this article came out, uh, TikTok released their own press release. None of this is by coincidence, right? TikTok to use Oracle services to store and secure the US, their US user data. This came out on June 18th. They issued a press release on this, right? And the um, BuzzFeed article came out on June 17th. None of this is by accident. BuzzFeed got leaked audio from 80 internal TikTok meetings showing that U.S. user data has been repeatedly accessed from China. Not that like TikTok got a request from China and then said, here you go, China. You know, I pulled these reports. Here's the data you're asking for. No, 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 no. This is saying China said, hey, you know, I want to go query this. Let me go. Let me go check out what's going on with TikTok. And then boom, they just do it from China. Hmm. It doesn't matter if they're on Oracle or not, right? Like what that's saying is, oh, well, we're on Oracle. No one should be able to hack into our data. Okay, great. But China doesn't need to hack into the data. Like they own it. It's, it's a Chinese company. The CCP and a, and a Chinese tech company are literally one and the same. Like CCP says, I want this. They get it. It's not a hacking. Like the company will just give it to them. Years ago, this was pre-COVID. We were literally laughing about this on the show where the head of TikTok said, yeah, if President Xi asked me for someone's data, I wouldn't give it to him. We're, we're literally, Nick and I were just giggling to ourselves like, okay, great. Then you and your family are going to jail, buddy. So you're really not going to give President Xi the data that he wants about your users? And that guy, surprise, surprise, no longer works at TikTok. What a surprise. And China has all the data they would ever like. Everything is seen in China, said a member of TikTok's Trust and Safety Department in a September 2021 meeting. In another September meeting, a director referred to one of the one of Beijing-based engineers as a master admin who has, quote, access to everything. Oh my God, right? So there's some good news. You actually have the FCC commissioner calling on Apple and Google to remove TikTok from the app stores, citing national security concerns. Brendan Carr. Goodbye, Brendan. Everyone likes to hate on President Trump. President Trump called this from a mile away. India also did the same thing, gang. Okay, this doesn't need to get partisan. India banned TikTok, did another video on this, and within 12 months, you had a TikTok clone, but it was from an Indian tech company. And that company raised over a billion dollars in in VC money that's going to help Indian, you know, workers get Indian jobs at the Indian TikTok competitor. And all of the Indian users data is going to be stored in India and not accessed by China. Sounds like a pretty good deal, right? Like, do you really like to, is it, is, can you really not create a TikTok clone? There are other TikTok competitors. They just don't get the breathing room because TikTok is so dominant here. And it's a, it's a platform monopoly. This is a modern monopoly. It's how these businesses work. This is the role for government to come in and take action. And we almost did, but because of frankly, dumb partisan politics, uh, the ban did not go through. And now this, this situation has continued to spiral out of control 
um, and China's continued to exert both soft and hard power through their Chinese tech monopolies. It's ridiculous why we let this thing operate here. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us. I'll talk to you soon. Have a great 4th of July. Go America.